1 Kings chapter 18, we begin in verse 30. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 40. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention in particular to the words of verse 36. This is Elijah's prayer now, and I want to focus on this prayer. Notice what he says. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. I want to take a step back this morning and look at Elijah calling down fire from heaven again. I know we focused on that last week, and we're going to focus on it somewhat again, but we are going to take a step back. In our last study, I focused on what happens when God answers by fire. You may recall The narrative shows us that when God answers by fire, the people become convinced that the Lord is God, and they make their confession in solemn reverence. Verse 39 tells us that they fell on their faces when they confessed the Lord to be God. We also saw that mortification takes place when the Lord answers by fire. The prophets of Baal were executed, which was what the law of God called for in Old Testament times. And while I would not say that we're called on to execute the adherents of false religion in our day, we are called on to mortify the flesh. In other words, to use the words of our shorter catechism, to die more and more to sin and to live more and more to righteousness. That's mortification. That's what we're called on to do. That's where our Christian duty takes us. That's where our heart desire should take us as believers in Christ. So these are the effects that take place then when the Lord answers by fire, 
And the kind of fire we desire today could be called the fire of Pentecost. Or in other words, the fire of revival. When revival takes place, you see, the same thing happens as what happened on Mount Carmel in the days of Elijah. People become convicted of sin and convinced of Christ, and salvation takes place, which leads to the giving up of old habits and the giving up of the world's ways in order to pursue Christ. What I want to do this morning, as I just said, is to take a step back from the fire falling to look more closely at what it actually was that brought the fire down from heaven. I'm only stating the obvious when I say that God sent the fire in answer to Elijah's prayer. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, the prophet says in verse 37, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. And then verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah prayed, God sent the fire. Really is very simple, isn't it? It doesn't take a great deal of uh, deep exegesis or even knowledge of Hebrew uh, to catch the meaning in the narration. The heart-searching question that needs to be asked today, though, is why don't we see those kind of answers to prayer today? And I'm thinking now spiritually, not literally. We shouldn't expect to see the kind of literal fire that fell in Elijah's day, but when we think of the spiritual counterpart to that literal fire being the fire of revival blessing through which God is made known and sin is repented of and sinners become convicted of sin and convinced of Christ, why haven't we seen that kind of answer to our prayers? It seems that what we see instead in our day is the advancement of moral perversity and wickedness. I can still remember our former president, Barack Obama, commenting on the growing woke movement, saying that there was a revival in our land with that kind of advancement. He looks upon the woke movement as being revival. The forces of spiritual wickedness in high places have their own ideas about revival, and they seem to think that they're the ones that are knowing revival today. I've been using throughout the course of these studies a reference book from A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink, who did a series on Elijah. And I must say I have found the chapter, his chapter on Elijah's prayer to be one of the most convicting and heart-searching chapters in that book that I've read to date. I've also found the chapter, the same chapter, to be potentially very dangerous to a Christian's way of thinking. I'll get into that along the way. He writes, If we walk not in separation from the world, if we deny not self, strive not against sin, mortify not our lusts, but gratify our carnal nature, is there any wonder that our prayer life is cold and formal and our petitions unanswered? Ouch! But you know what? That's good. Oh, let the conviction come. Let the challenge come. Bring it on, uh, Dr. Pink. I don't know if he was a doctor or not, but you know what I mean. Earlier in that same chapter, he 
refers to faith being dormant in the life of a Christian. That's another way of saying that faith has become stagnant. Spiritual growth in grace and in the knowledge of Christ simply stalls and the followers of Christ become complacent to their own spiritual growth. I think you could argue that what Pink has in mind is the kind of lukewarmness that's described in the book of Revelation pertaining to the church at Laodicea. Nothing is so repugnant to Christ as Christians in such a condition of stagnant or dormant faith, lukewarmness. And so we read in Revelation 3.14, And unto the angel of the church in Laodicea write, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Oh, what a terrible indictment comes to the church in Laodicea. And I won't take the time to cover the verses that follow, but uh, if you get a chance, uh, look at the rest of those verses in Revelation chapter 3. The thing that I find incredible in those verses is that the church's analysis of its own spiritual condition is completely at odds with the way Christ analyzes their condition. In their own minds, they're fine. We have everything. Everything is sufficient. We're in need of nothing. Christ doesn't see it that way. Oh, he sees them as cold and dead and blind and oblivious to what their true condition really is. And he counsels them to uh, buy eye salve tried in the fire so that they might regain some spiritual vision, which they obviously had lost. Professing Christians in this spiritual condition, if they pray much at all, They surely don't pray with the kind of effectual fervency of a righteous man that's needed to call forth fire from heaven. So let's look closer at Elijah's prayer this morning. And let's look at his prayer with the aim in view of emulating his kind of praying. Uh, I want to pray the way this man prayed. I want to see answers the way this man saw answers. Can it be done? Christ's disciples, you may recall, once requested of him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. That's in Luke 11 and verse 1. This morning, I want to take that same kind of request to the prophet Elijah. Elijah, teach us to pray the way you prayed when the Lord answered by fire. Teach us to pray that way, Elijah. And what do you suppose Elijah would say to us? Well, I think, first of all, he would say, we must pray from the right perspective. When you pray, you must pray from the right perspective as it pertains to prayer. Leading up to Elijah's prayer was something very important that we read in verse 30, where it says, And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. You could argue this was the preparation part on his part, leading up to his prayer. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. John Gill, the great Baptist theologian, gives us an explanation about this altar that Elijah repaired. Listen to what he says of the altar, which had been set up when high places and altars were allowed of, While the tabernacle was unsettled and the temple not built, this is supposed to have been erected in the times of the judges, though according to a tradition of the Jews, it was built by Saul. See 1 Samuel 15, 12. But had been thrown down by the idolatrous Israelites 
who demolished such as were erected in the name of the Lord everywhere and built new ones for their idols. We'll come to see that even with greater clarity when we get into chapter 19 and Elijah's comment or complaint before the Lord is that they have thrown down thine altars everywhere. Gill's comment makes sense, especially when you read in that next chapter, chapter 19 and verse 10, the words of Elijah, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. That's in verse 10. He says it again a little later on in that same chapter. So the first thing Elijah does when it becomes his turn to call on his God is to repair the altar of the Lord. Interesting to note that in a later period of Israel's history, when the Israelites were allowed to return home following their 70-year period in exile, we have the account given to us in the book of Ezra of the temple being rebuilt, and we have the account in the book of Nehemiah of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and I think the city itself, being rebuilt. Both had been destroyed, you may recall, by the Babylonians 70 years earlier when the Israelites were taken into captivity. Upon their return to the ruined city and temple, a return that was granted to them with permission from the Persian king Cyrus. The very first thing they did in beginning that rebuilding project was to set up the altar of the Lord. So we read in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 2. Then stood up Jeshua the son of Josedek and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. First thing they did upon their arrival back into the destroyed city of Jerusalem, item number one of highest priority when it comes to rebuilding the ruined temple and the ruined city is first set up the altar of the Lord. Old Testament worship, you see, could not take place without the burnt offerings on the altar of the God of Israel. You can hardly conceive of worship in Israel without their burnt offerings. When the nation was at its peak of glory and splendor and Solomon's temple had been built and was dedicated, we read in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 63, And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto the Lord two and twenty thousand oxen and a hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day did the king hallow the middle of the court, that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings and meat offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. At their peak, animal sacrifice was at the heart of their worship. So Elijah's repairing of one of those ancient altars of the Lord was not something new, or something merely incidental. It was rather something of the utmost importance regarding his prayer to the Lord. We know, of course, that in this New Testament age, animal sacrifices are no longer offered because the ultimate sacrifice has been made by Christ himself. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Apostle Paul got into more hot water with the Israelites by pointing that out. 
The old order is done. The old order has expired because it's been fulfilled by the offering of Christ. Hebrews really takes up that theme. And in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, the author of that epistle writes, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. So we have an altar, don't we? In New Testament times, in this current dispensation, we have an altar. But it's not the same. It doesn't resemble the altar of animal sacrifices. Christ is our altar. And Christ is the superior sacrifice offered by a superior priesthood, which was also Christ. What I want you to see now, however, by Elijah's repairing of the altar that had been torn down, is that the sacrificial altar was, and in a spiritual sense, is the central part of worship that must govern our praying. We're going to pray aright. We're going to pray the way Elijah prayed, if we're going to pray with any kind of hope for the kind of answers that Elijah saw, then we must offer our prayers from the right perspective, which is the perspective of the altar. The burnt offering, you could say, in Old Testament times was at the heart of the gospel. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. Don't let anyone ever tell you, oh, there's no gospel, there's no grace, that the Old Testament is filled with nothing but law, nothing but commandments that the people failed to keep. Oh, no, the Old Testament is filled with grace. That whole ceremonial uh, worship system was designed to point them to Christ. The gospel was very much in the Old Testament. And what that altar typified must govern the way Elijah prayed, and so must it govern the way that we pray. I said earlier in my introduction that Arthur Pink's chapter on Elijah's prayer is very convicting and heart-searching, but also potentially dangerous. Listen to what he writes. Now, if what has just been pointed out serves to explain the prevalency of Elijah's intercession, does it not, alas, also furnish the reason why so many of us have not the ear of God, have not the power, have not power with him in prayer? It is the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man which availeth much with God, James 5, 16. And that signifies something more than a man to whom the righteousness of Christ has been imputed. Oh, A.W. Pink, how could you? (laughs) How could you undermine the very gospel that you're trying to expound? It signifies something more than a man to whom the righteousness of Christ has been imputed. God needs something more than that. We need a righteousness more than that. Now, I know what he's doing, okay? I I, I know what kind of point that Pink is trying to make, and I'm actually in agreement with that point in that section of his chapter in Elijah's prayer. But I'm not at all in agreement with the way he's making his point. He's suggesting that the righteousness of Christ is insufficient for the believer to have his prayers answered. That's not enough. You have to have something more. Something must be added to that righteousness, which in this case must be the personal righteousness of the one who's praying. Like I said, he's making a point that's valid, and we'll look at that in just another moment. But he doesn't have to undermine the gospel in order to make his point. The merit of Christ's life and death is at the heart of God's dealing with us. Paul, the Apostle Paul, 
who in terms of living a life of practical righteousness stood head and shoulders above any in his generation, would say with regard to his own personal righteousness, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? My personal righteousness amounts to dung and I disown it and I won't have it I don't want it to have any part of my standing with God. I instead stand in the hope of Christ's righteousness imputed to me by faith. Now, I know what Pink is complaining about in his book, and he's not the first one to make this kind of complaint. Basically, what he has in mind are are people that have a right view, an orthodox view, of the gospel, including the righteousness of Christ being imputed to them. But their lives come nowhere close to measuring up to what they ought to in the light of what they believe. Rather interesting to note, if you ever get the chance to read Ian Murray's biography of John Wesley, makes for an interesting study. John Wesley has actually been accused of denying the doctrine of justification by faith. I hope he didn't deny it. I wouldn't look for him in heaven if he denied it. But what Ian Murray goes on to explain from his perspective and based on his research is that John Wesley more or less waffled on the doctrine He would go back and forth in his view of it. Yeah, I see what the Bible says. No, I don't think it's true. The thing that governed his doubts about it was not so much what the Bible said as it was the lives of the people that professed to believe it. If that's all it does for them, that can't be right, was his view. I suspect Arthur Pink was the same way. I suspect that new heresies that arise, arise for the same reason. We were having a discussion, some of us in the hall last week, about federal vision theology, this new perspective on Paul that is taking especially the Reformed world by storm, that seems to have such a scholarly aura about it uh, that people are buying into it. I believe it springs from the same thing. Um, Easy believism. People that profess the orthodox view of the gospel and their lives are pathetic. Their lives don't measure up to what they say they believe. If you believe that, oh my, what an impact it ought to have. What a transforming impact it ought to have on your life. Why doesn't it? You know, that's where the matter becomes heart-searching. But I'm not going to deny the truth of what the Bible teaches. Because there may be groups of Christians whose orthopraxy, which refers to their practice, doesn't match their orthodoxy, what they believe. So you might say that Pink, in his attempt to make a valid and needed point, does the very opposite of what Elijah did. Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord, showing us the right perspective for his prayer. You might say that Arthur Pink, in a sense, is tearing down that altar again because he thinks he has to in order to make his point. Uh, He doesn't. 
Let's not ever forget then that the altar of Christ must govern our perspective in our praying. I will not offer to God the filthy rags of my righteousness and hope for a favorable answer. As the hymn writer puts it, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. God's answer by fire couldn't have come to Elijah without the altar being repaired and repaired, I might add, after the stipulations of God's law. Neither will the Pentecostal fire come to us based on anything other than the merit of Christ's life and Christ's death. What would Elijah teach us then with regard to prayer? He'd teach us that prayer must be prayed from the right perspective, which is the perspective of the sacrifice, the altar, and the sacrifice that points us to Christ. But he teaches us something else about prayer. And this is the point that I think that Arthur Pink was seeking to make much of. Elijah, you could say, teaches us that we must pray with active faith. We must pray with active faith. In his faith, Elijah identifies with his covenant-keeping God. The very first words of his prayer are these, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. That covenant relationship is also recognized by the use of the 12 stones corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel that were used to repair the altar of the Lord. So he's pleading that covenant tie with God through which God promised that he would be their God and that Israel would be his people. But note also how his prayer continues. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Here is what I mean by an act of faith. Active faith. Here is how Elijah's prayer became evident. He served the Lord, and all that he did, he did by the word of the Lord. We've seen that pattern a number of times already. I know I pointed them out in our studies of Elijah. He went to the brook Cherith by the word of the Lord. He went from there to the widow of Zarephath by the word of the Lord. He showed himself again to King Ahab by the word of the Lord. And now he would have it known that his, th this whole showdown that he had initiated against the prophets of Baal was done by the word of the Lord. Elijah didn't do this of his own initiative. Elijah didn't invent this contest, thinking, what a good idea, let's try it. No. All that he did, he was directed to do by the word of the Lord. That is the fruit of faith. Obedience and service to Christ. That's the point that Pink was trying to drive at. This is what Elijah possessed, and that Pink complains is missing in the lives of so many Christians, which can account for their prayers going largely unanswered, and I don't doubt it for a moment. But if service and obedience to Christ is missing, it's not because faith needs to be added to the righteousness of Christ. No, it's because faith in Christ is altogether lacking. It's become dormant. It's become stagnant. It's become practically untraceable. How often did Christ have to chide his own disciples for the smallness of their faith? 
when they crossed the stormy sea and they had to awaken Christ because they thought they were about to perish and that Christ didn't care. He rose up and stilled the stormy sea and then he asked them how it was that they had no faith. Mark 4 and verse 40. This is where Arthur Pink's thoughts were very convicting to my own soul. He speaks of a dormant faith, a faith that doesn't do anything beyond professing to believe certain truths. An inactive faith, you could call it. James in his epistle is very bold on this score. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Well, I tell you what, James sure swings a sharp sword. Challenging and convicting. Pink makes this point, and it's a good one, a valid one. He says, Christ has not died in order to purchase for his people an indulgence for them to live in sin. Rather, did he shed his precious blood to redeem them from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works, Titus 2.14. And just so far as they neglect those good works, will they fail to enter experimentally into the benefits of his redemption. It's a stagnant faith. It's a dormant faith. It's an inactive faith. And we all face the potential for our faith degenerating into that at times. Our praying, then, must spring from an active faith. I wonder this morning, how active is your faith? Is it active enough to make you stand out as someone who is different from the world? Is it active enough to keep you from being pulled down to the world's level in terms of your language and conduct? Is it active enough to raise you to a level of integrity that's largely missing in the world today? Is it active enough to make you unashamed to publicly identify with Christ or speak for Christ? I'm not now suggesting that your faith needs to be so outstanding that you count it to be nothing if you're not doing spectacular feats like calling down fire from heaven. Quite the contrary. I think the most practical way for our faith to be active is to be constantly looking for the little ways to show your faith. And this leads to my next and final point. We've seen that Elijah teaches us to pray from the right perspective, that perspective being the altar that points us to Christ. And now we've seen how he teaches us to pray with a faith that is active in service and obedience. Let's consider finally that Elijah teaches us that we must pray and indeed live with simple faith. We must live with simple faith. This really isn't a complex matter. It really is quite simple. Remember what Elijah's prayer is contrasted to in this chapter. We've seen the kind of devotion that the prophets of Baal exhibited. Jumping around their altar in wild frenzy, cutting themselves until their blood gushed forth, and they spent the better part of the day calling on their God, all the way past noon, right up until the time of the evening sacrifice. We note that when Elijah prayed, he did so with 
incredible directness and simplicity and brevity. He prayed very briefly. How long does it take to even read this prayer? Less than a minute? Look at the words again, verses 36 and 37. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Click, turn off the stopwatch. What did it take? I should have had someone time me. I don't think it took a minute. A minute at most. I believe I made the point in our study last week that there is a resemblance here in Elijah's prayer to the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6. Especially is there resemblance to that petition, Hallowed be thy name. This is all Elijah desired of the Lord that he make himself known to be the Lord. You can't go wrong praying the Lord's Prayer, you know, as long as you're actually praying it and not simply reciting it. There is a difference. It covers everything you need to seek God for, for his name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to advance, for his will to be done, for our daily bread to be administered, for our sins to be forgiven, for our protection from being led into temptation and delivered from evil. What a comprehensive prayer, and yet how simple and respectful and direct. It exemplifies, you might say, the way that faith should be lived out with sincerity and simplicity. Paul expresses the idea of simple faith this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you, word. I've seen a couple of examples of this in the last couple of days. I saw a Facebook post a couple days ago that was posted by a young lady from our Alabama church. She had been in the hospital because of a severe allergic reaction she had from what she thinks is a dollar bill that was on the ground. She thought it was hers. She had been pulling out money out of her purse uh, to get change for the car wash and a dollar bill was on the ground. She thought it was hers and that she dropped it. And when she picked it up, she immediately began to swell all over. An allergic reaction, she thought, to that dollar bill. She thinks it's from fentanyl being um, coated on that dollar bill. I don't know if she's right or, or not in that. My daughter, the nurse practitioner, dares to take issue with that. But be that as it may, no doubt that she swelled up all over and she became panic-stricken and had to be taken to the hospital in an ambulance. She appears to be okay, thankfully. And in this post that I'm now referring to, it shows a picture of a couple of young kids from her church in Alabama that had come to her place and washed her car for her. That's what I mean by a simple, active display of faith. It's an act of kindness done toward uh, a soul in need who had been through a hard time. What a simple deed of kindness and service that can spring from faith in Jesus Christ and can be done as unto him. Another Facebook post. 
if Facebook actually can be good for something, can it? Another post, this one from uh, a group of Bob Jones alumni uh, that we follow. Someone in the group took it upon himself or herself, I don't remember who this was, but they took it upon themselves to start a fundraising plan for the graduating seniors. They're about to graduate. And in a short time, they raised enough money to pay off the remaining tuition of everyone in that graduating class. Wow. I imagine there were probably some pretty generous donations behind that effort, but I suspect there were mostly small donations from a lot of different sources. Again, simple acts of faith done for the Lord to prove the sincerity of a Christian's love to Christ. It occurs to me that in the case of Elijah, we have this spectacular accomplishment of his faith and his praying. But stop and think for a moment. Before this showdown with the prophets of Baal took place, he would have been seen with the widow in Zarephath, knowing daily provision during the time of drought through the cruise of oil that never ran out and the barrel of meal that never wasted. I don't know how long his time was divided between the brook Cherith and the widow at Zarephath. If they were evenly divided, he would have been with that widow for more than a year, living with her day by day, seeing answers to prayer. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And the barrel of meal never wasted. The Lord takes care of us that way. In response to Simple acts of faith. It's the simple things of faith, I suggest, that lead to greater manifestations of God through prayer. So tell me this morning, dear believer in Christ, more importantly, tell yourself each day and each hour of the day, how can I live out my faith today? How can I live it out just now? I won't overlook the importance of being in the Lord's house on the Lord's day with the Lord's people. Here in church, we are able to live out our faith and worship as long as that's what we're doing and not just going through empty motions. But faith is not only meant to be lived out in the Lord's house on Sunday. It's meant to be lived out every day of the week. So look ahead and be thinking about it. How can I show my faith to my Savior tomorrow? Tomorrow's Monday. You've got time. Devote the rest of this day and plan ahead. How can I show my faith in Christ tomorrow when I'm back in the world, when I'm back among lost souls? How can I do it? Some of you are familiar with Ron Hamilton is a composer, hymn writer, went home to heaven uh, here this past week, uh, was called home to glory after a long time struggle with dementia. And uh, his wife, boy, she's different on Facebook. She has brought us right into uh, her entire situation and somewhat great detail, probably greater detail than most would do in, in explaining this uh, journey. But at the end of all of her posts, she has a saying that I've come to love. I don't know if it originated with her or not, but I discovered it with her. She says, have a blessed day on purpose. I love that last line especially. Have a blessed day on purpose. Or in other words, be resolved, I'm going to demonstrate my faith today. I'm going to commune with my Savior today. Think of another example. If any of you listen to VCY Radio, you can listen to that over sermon audio if you like. 
And among the things on there is a five-minute worldview report that highlights from a Christian perspective things that are going on all over the world. And every time that five minutes comes up, the announcer says, seize the day for Jesus Christ. I love that saying too. Basically what they amount to is look ahead, plan ahead, manifest your faith. Be thinking of ways you can put your faith to work as the fruit of what you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can I show my faith to my Savior tomorrow? How can I demonstrate my faith to Christ when I rise in the morning, when I go to work, when I get home from work? How can I demonstrate my faith to my spouse and with my spouse and to my children and with my children? When we approach our walk with the Lord this way and we find ourselves living unto him in the obedience and service that comes as the fruit of our faith, not in addition to our faith, but as the fruit of our faith, then we put ourselves in position for praying for and seeing answers to our prayers for great things. We put ourselves, in other words, in a position to pray in such a way that God answers, spiritually speaking, by fire. So let's pray from a right perspective when we pray privately or with our family or in church. Let's pray from the perspective of what the altar points us to. It points us to the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Let's not ever lose that perspective. The devil will tempt you to abandon that perspective. And let's pray with an act of faith. Don't let your faith go dormant or become stagnant. Don't let it degenerate to the point that it's no different from the demons that believe and tremble. And let's not make our walk with the Lord something that becomes complicated. Walk with the Lord in that childlike simplicity of faith. And who knows, we might just see things begin to happen that are just as amazing as fire from heaven. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, I cannot deny, O Lord, that I'm too familiar with a dormant faith, with a kind of lukewarmness about my spirituality that Christ finds repugnant. O Lord, give grace. Grant us repentance. Help us, O Lord, to put our faith to work knowing as we do that it is thy spirit that does work in us to to will and to do of thy good pleasure. So, Lord, work mightily in us and through us and help us to do our part by thy grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.